G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. Well, Dad, we are super excited today to be joined by Mark Grant. Mark is a clinical psychologist with over 30 years of experience in the treatment of stress, trauma, and pain. Mark's main interest and experience is in the role of negative emotion resulting from stress as a cause and effect of health problems. Based on recent discoveries from brain scans, Mark regards emotion as both key to many psychological problems, but also as a powerful resource. Associated with this, he is interested in treatments which harness people's emotional resources. We are, as I said, so lucky to be joined by Mark today. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, welcome, Mark. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Looking forward to our conversation today. Very much so. And now, Mark, just to start, I suppose I'll, I'll start by asking you, you know, the area of pain, in some ways, it could be such a challenging area to work in, in terms of the people both who experience pain and I imagine also those around the people who experience pain, their family and friends and all, all that sort of thing. So what led you to work in the area of, of pain and pain management? Well, exactly as you say, Rowan, it's, it's, the, it's the challenging nature of it. And as a psychologist and as a human being, I guess, I was just moved by the plight of people who are in pain, how, how few resources there were for them, how alone they often felt, um, just the, the, the depth of their suffering. And I really started out not knowing anything and um, I didn't, I just felt incredibly helpless. And so that really began a lifelong journey. I, I, I mean, to be honest, just to, to find out how to help these people and to be able to experience myself as being useful to them in the therapy setting. And of course, the, the, um, I guess it, it became a, an incredible learning journey. And I never expected just how much I would learn about myself and how much satisfaction I could ultimately get out of walking with people on those incredible journeys and seeing them come out the other side after a long, really hard battle and how immensely satisfying that was for me as a therapist. So, and, and coincidentally, my mother was a chronic pain sufferer. Now that can't have anything to do with it. That must be a coincidence. Not at uh, all. You won't listen you know. to Freud or anyone else on that one. <laughs> well, no. Mark, you mentioned about, about the loneliness that people would feel. And oh, I imagine it is something that many people would feel in terms of it's such an individual thing to go through in some ways and you'd potentially feel that other people around you didn't understand. But then I suppose someone in your position would potentially see, I suppose, the, even the amount of people who experience chronic pain and, and recognise that maybe it is a little bit more prominent than maybe people realise. So what I wonder is, is just how big of a problem in the community is chronic pain? Yeah, well, that's right, Rowan. It's a strange, one of those strange thing where, where things where it actually affects quite a substantial number of people. Um, it's, for example, it's estimated that, it'll, that chronic pain will affect one in five people at some time in their lifetime. So that's a lot of people. And, and yet it's a bit like, I guess, some other psychological problems like anxiety and, and things. People are a bit ashamed about it and um, not many people understand it. So for the person who's experiencing it, they can feel like they're the only one when in fact, um, you, know, there's, you know, there's lots of people in the community who are suffering 
Now, I also think another reason why perhaps for that is that people don't understand it because we tend to think of pain really as a reaction to, you know, acute injury. So, you know, you break your leg six, six weeks or whatever, you're better, it's healed, fine, you go on with life. So um, the average person doesn't understand, you know, how people can hurt long after they should be better. And so they... Um, they just don't know how to really support or understand people who are in chronic pain. And I think also people, you know, family and friends just get a bit tired of it. And doc, even, doc, you know, doctors, you know, why aren't you better yet? So there's a lot, there's actually a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of discrimination that goes on as well. A lot of head shaking and eye rolling, especially really, unfortunately for women, they, they, um, Definitely, I think, get more mistreated than men do um, if, you know, if they're suffering from chronic pain. Um, so that, so that's, I think that's why, you know, for many reasons, it's a lonely, lonely road. One of the things that uh, came up recently, Mark, and it was wonderful that you uh, gave a workshop to psychologists in our practice just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that struck me is many of your messages are hopeful and uplifting about things that people can do. And part of that is addressing some of the misunderstandings. And you were alluding to some there. But one of the things I found fascinating is one of the misunderstandings is about whether chronic pain can have some survival value. Like generally we would have thought, well, chronic pain is kind of like useless. It sort of, it just gets in the way of people, leads them to feel helpless. But there's actually some evidence that there's a, I suppose, a, some utility in evolution maybe for chronic pain. Yes, that's a very strange and interesting thing, Chris. I'm glad you answered that question. So it really comes down to, um, our understanding of chronic pain, and we're probably going to move into that shortly, you know, the brain and trauma and things like that. But, you know, just, just going back to the idea of chronic pain, you know, thinking of it in terms of a reaction to physical injury. So, you know, from that sort of point of view, um, pain that persists, pain that's, you know, goes beyond the normal healing time, that isn't and is, isn't warning you know you of danger or injury or or that you need to get help that really has that would really appear to have no evolutionary value and that's tend to be the way that um you know even chronic pain experts have looked at it until um a few years ago uh, some researchers in the uk decided to test that theory out do you want me to retell that story yes yeah. it's very interesting the squid. It's an amazing, yes. amazing experiment, a very clever experiment. So, you know, these researchers just wanted to test that idea about chronic pain, whether it really, really, you know, just has no, no survival value. So what they did was they, they got a bunch of squid, poor old squid, and they cut off, um, they basically cut off some tentacles and, and two thirds of the squid. So they left one third of the squid Fine and fine and dandy, and then in, in one and then the, and then half of the ones that they cut the tentacles off, they gave them an anaesthetic, so they wouldn't be in pain. And the other half they left with no anaesthetic, so they were the base of the chronic pain group, if you like, in the experiment. And then they threw these poor old squid in a tank full of predators, and um, they found that the squid that had the chronic pain 
basically were the survived the best. And so they concluded that somehow chronic pain was, you know, conferring an evolutionary advantage that it makes people more alert to danger. And this is where, I guess this is where the trauma element comes in that um, we've, we've, it's been discovered in the last 20 years or really, I mean, it was known a hundred years ago, but like a lot of things that kind of got forgotten and then rediscovered, but basically that people who develop chronic pain are more likely to have a background of tra traumatic stress in their life, maybe physical or sexual abuse, maybe just living in a household where there was domestic violence or un instability. And um, that basically um, puts their nervous system under a lot of stress. So uh, those, those kind of individuals are more predisposed to develop chronic pain and they're more, they're more predisposed to have a sort of fight flight response to threat or anxiety. So what and what they tend what really what trauma survivors tend to do and it's pretty smart is they become superman or superwoman they become really good at pleasing other people really good at fulfilling their responsibilities really good at just knowing how to be what you know the people in their life want them to be and they they can become very successful and that and that in a way that keeps them safe and it keeps them really it keeps them away from feeling vulnerable and it keeps them away from the shame that often goes from being a survivor of trauma um so so they're, they're going along married in their life and they're they're very successful they're very in control they feel they feel powerful and unassailable and then suddenly they start to get sick and they have an injury or an accident at work they develop chronic pain and they're vulnerable so guess what happens? Their nervous system goes into a fight flight response. Everything's switched on, they're all amped up. They can't sleep, they're restless, they're anxious, they're on edge. And they're essentially back in that vulnerable position that they were as a child and their defense mechanisms have been stripped away from them. So that, that anxiety, that tension is their nervous system trying to keep them safe. But unfortunately, it's exacerbating their pain because they're in an elevated kind of level of arousal. Their brain's misinterpreting the signals from their body. Um, you know, they, their immune system's not functioning well. And it's sort of like what was initially a good, what initially was a good way of surviving is now a problem. Yes, and what you're getting at there, it, uh, it seems to reflect a sentence in your book on change your brain, change your pain, where you describe that even though we experience pain physically, chronic pain is a mind-body problem. And you're getting at that somewhat when you talk about trauma reactions and all the rest of it. But if we experience in our body and physically, how is chronic pain a mind-body problem? Oh, gee, and that's a great, that's a good question too. So. I don't. I guess a lot of your listeners. Not, I don't think a lot of people know this, but they've. Gosh, that's such a big question. Um, for, first of all, it's a mind. It's a mind-body problem because acute pain, physical injury, you know, reaction, quite, 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 you know, you know, I suppose cause effect. But when you when you start to talk about chronic pain, really, uh, when a person's um, had, you know, had a lot of trauma and then they get injured and they're in pain, 
there's a whole, they, they start to experience themselves differently. Their um, immune system functioning changes, their levels of neurotransmitters in their brain uh, become um, dysregulated. Um, that, that's a complex process, but there's basically their levels of dopamine and serotonin and even endorphins and enkephalins decrease. And they become really more susceptible to being in pain. Um, their brain releases things called cytokines, which um, are responsible for insomnia, fatigue, and nausea that chronic pain sufferers experience. And um, uh, emotional areas of the brain uh, become over overactive and excited. In fact, of the nine areas of the brain that you know they've discovered that are involved in the experience of chronic pain. Seven of those areas are to do with emotional and intellectual functioning. Nothing to do with, uh, you know, you know, you know, interpreting bodily signals. So, um, although it feels as though it's coming from our body, in actual fact, chronic pain is coming from the brain. That really struck me from your workshop. That seven of nine areas of the brain involved are to do with more emotional functioning, and it just contrasts with something that I well was taught about chronic pain early on. This was in the early '80s, and it was like a physio who was a pain expert, and he said that if I look at an X-ray and I see a certain level of damage on that X-ray, then the the the, the patient, the person with pain, isn't allowed to have more pain than a certain kind of level, unless that's justified by the x-ray. He basically used the term not allowed, like it was almost like a moral judgment. And so that's how strongly people believed that it was just a physical thing, it seems to me. But when you describe the seven of the nine areas of the brain involved with emotional functioning, then that, that suggests then that if people have a certain kind of pain experience, it actually likely associates with something real. It will be certain parts of their brain are activated or less activated. And as you say, the different neurotransmitters involved. So there are actual processes going on that you describe in detail in your book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain, in your workshops and things like that. There are actual processes going on that actually match the person's experience rather than discredit the person's claims of pain. Exactly. And anyone, any, really anyone, anyone who says like what your physio said is just ignorant. And um, unfortunately, that can be include, you know, treating professionals as well. But um, it, is a, it is a hard thing to accept and to understand. Um, but I really want to make the point that because it's in the brain doesn't mean it's not real. Yes. I really, really want to make that point very strongly. And yeah, well that, I, I, just, I just think that it's just a different way of thinking about pain. In actual fact, I've often thought about the term chronic pain and it's those two words should never be used together because as soon as you think pain, you do think, you know, cut, broken leg, injury and pain, chronic pain, you know, physical discomfort is only, is only such a small actual dimension of the whole pain experience. So you've got brain change, you've got insomnia, you've got relationship changes, you've got identity changes, you've got biochemical changes, you, you've got immune system functioning changes. You know, pain is just, you know, just a small component of really what's a very complicated mind-body problem. 
Yes, actually, it reminds me what you're saying too. When people are suffering, often they're not mucking mucking around when they report where they're having some challenge or difficulty. And that notion of people not necessarily being believed or being discredited, uh, you mentioned trauma. And, and we've had some podcast episodes on dissociation, including depersonalization. And, and what struck me in the early 90s is often when people reported dissociative experiences and certain trauma-related experiences, it could be amnesia, or at times depersonalization, like feeling as though they're a different person, uh, often it was taken that the person was making it up or just being over the top hysterical or whatever. Whereas one of the things I picked up from what you were emphasizing in your work with people with pain, you take it very seriously when people describe the distress that they have. And you're looking to understand that also the impact on them and from their point of view. So it seems to me an important part of pain what will helping people is to validate their experience but it seems that part of that is helping the person accept their pain have ways of maybe accepting it rather than trying to avoid it or pretend it's not there or yeah spot on spot on chris and that that you know that word about that word validation is is the key thing here so if you invalidate a person whatever really whatever it is they're experiencing you're you know if you validate their feelings you're invalidating them and that's what, that's really what children who are abused or who are neglected have experienced. They've experienced invalidation. And they've, they've, they've now got, you know, chronic pain for whatever reason, and they're being invalidated again. So it's actually a repeat of the trauma that they initially suffered and have tried to overcome. It's really very traumatizing. And it's something that really bugs me, I have to admit. Um, that the, that people, these poor people, are just being, you know, sent to the cleaners again, because people people don't understand what they're going through. I think that's actually, Rowan, what really, really, I think, now that I think about it, has really hooked me in this work. It's the, it's just being the one to say, I believe, I believe in the reality of of your experience, and seeing the relief on people's faces when you do that. That's that's such that that's you know I'm sure Chris you know you know that one yeah with people with trauma reactions very similar yes yeah absolutely and and I find that fascinating in some ways Mark in terms of that idea of really accepting pain almost uh, oh, I suppose really kind of almost drilling down and 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 not avoiding the pain and I suppose or, or not avoiding the fact that we're experiencing chronic pain for example and what I wonder there is for example you know one one tactic almost or one strategy that I hear about managing with pain is to try and whether we distract ourselves in a way where we're not focusing on the pain all the time but I wonder if you could speak a little bit to maybe the difference between for example avoiding pain and avoiding the fact that we experience pain and distracting ourselves from that yeah, great question, Rowan. So, how can I put this? I guess I guess people who are, who are trauma survivors have spent a lot of their life avoiding their feelings as a way of surviving and coping and being strong. And when they have a crisis such as chronic pain and disability, they just want to keep on doing that. And that really means not paying attention to their body, not paying attention to their feelings, not paying attention to their needs just trying to be what the world wants them to be and, you know, get back on to that way of living. And most of them, my clients really struggle to do that and, and they can't because they're just in too much pain. Their body won't let them. And in a, in a kind of crazy way, 
chronic pain forces them to have to stop and have a look at themselves, deal with their trauma, learn to, you know, to be with themselves, to pay attention to their feelings, to get their needs met, um, to, I guess, to become a whole person again. So uh, in, in, in a big way, um, you know, the, the way out of pain really is to, uh, to reconnect with oneself and to be um, present to one's own needs and experience. So in a way, they have to be less, become less avoidant. However, having said that, there, there's also a place for avoidance. Um, you know, if a, person's, if a person's in a lot of pain and having flare-ups, you know, the psychological healing journey can take months, years, and you can't be, you know, you don't want to be paying attention to your pain too much because then it becomes overwhelming. So um, it's really about finding a balance between avoidance and being present. And D.H. Lawrence, who was, who was a chronic pain sufferer, as it happens, he said something like, you know, when I'm to be my whole self when I'm suffering is just too awful. You know, I have to, I have to sort of escape myself sometimes to not be myself. And he, and that's a valid way of coping, but it, it, it's finding the, the right balance between avoidance and being present. Yes, and much of your approaches we've talked about is validating of the person. It's hopeful, but also some of the things you're describing at the moment, Mark, it shows that it's also complex and challenging, and it sometimes means that you're encouraging people to acknowledge or process things that might be difficult to deal with. One of the things that you've highlighted is how people can have complications to do with past attachment problems. And so how they've maybe connected with their parents and others. So could you say a little bit more about the experience of attachment and how that affects people's reactions to pain? Certainly, certainly. So of course, attachment, I guess your listeners know, but just for the record, it's it's the bond between a parent and a child or, or, you know, anyone we love and who's close to us. And, you know, we know that attachment is, is really um, important for self-soothing, for comforting, that it reduces oxytocin, you know, produces oxytocin and, you know, feel-good sort of chemicals in the human body. And so attachment is really the basic human self-regulating process. And it's the, it's the natural thing to do. Um, now let's say let's say you grew up in an abusive family or a dysfunctional family, and um, you know you couldn't get you know a, a, the attachment that you need isn't normally available to you. Well, then you've got a problem. How do you self-regulate? How do you self-soothe? Well, you become a workaholic. You start abusing drugs. You engage in risky behaviours. Uh, you basically find alternatives to you know to depending on people to relying on people in order to you know to to find comfort and relief but none of those methods as you can tell are very healthy and and in the long run they they lead to uh, chronic pain so that's what the, that's the attachment piece and just for the for your readers your listeners interest um, in case uh, that you know you don't know the the statistics regarding attachment problems are uh, alarming. It's the research shows that up to fifty percent of us will have uh, some sort of attachment problem, 
and um, that doesn't, ex you know, that includes all us mental health professionals too. And the um, the the right, so the attachment problems are common as dirt. Um, in chronic pain sufferers, they're seventy five percent. So they're they're you know that's it's a big causal factor, and it's again because of the stress and wear and tear that they put on their bodies. So really, quite, you know, if you got hurt at work, you know, it's work, I'm treating a nurse at the moment who, who developed back pain after a patient, you know, she was carrying fell on her. And, but her really, um, she didn't have good attachment. She had some trauma in her childhood. And then as she became older, she took on a lot of responsibilities as a mother, as a wife, as a worker. And her, her chronic pain really started when she was seven. Um, if, you know, if you look at it that way. So um, again, understanding the trauma angle gives you really an insight into understanding the genesis of chronic pain, which just will never make sense if you try to understand it in terms of the present injury. Yes, and so it comes across very much um, from what you've described that for anyone to understand their chronic pain, or certainly those health professionals looking to help them, it's important to do some kind of routine, at least screening or assessment of past trauma and attachment to help understand the person more, not to have other explanations for their problems or why they have complaints, so to speak, which can sometimes yeah. be dismissal dismissively the word complaint can be treated dismissively when really it's the person looking to acknowledge their suffering as they're experiencing it but um yeah but the, the way that you describe that to take some note and care and interest about those influences seems important but another thing it seems to me that sometimes people who are dealing with chronic pain might find challenging is the idea of not continuing to look for some kind of well, I might say external physical fix. It's sometimes described as a mer medical merry-go-round. The person goes from one surgery to the next, or they're looking for one kind of medication to the next. And so people can get caught up in that. Whereas you're encouraging people to look uh, more holistically at their experience as well and, and look at the mind-body side of things. So how do you look to deal with that if someone's quite focused on looking at that medical fix, but that's been going on maybe for years and not progressing very far? Well, thanks, Chris. Good question. There's lots of reasons for that, you know, for example, you know, again, just the way people understand pain. And then, of course, they've got the trauma, the trauma angle. So and the avoidance. So if you don't if you don't want to face, if you want to do, if you don't want to deal with your childhood stuff, it's really a lot easier to think of it as a medical problem and look to to the doctors for a solution rather than having to look really to oneself to understand and, and to deal with the problem. And I would say that just about every chronic pain sufferer has that journey to make. And they will initially look to, of course, just naturally look to the medical profession and perhaps other treatment modalities for a solution to their problems. And then, of course, when that doesn't work, um, you know, they sort of become, they become a bit of a, you know, anxious and depressed and a bit of a crisis sets in and hopefully sooner or later at that time, they'll, they'll seek out or be sent to, to talk to a psychologist and human beings are, you know, we're, we're, um, 
uh, we're interesting creatures. We, we'll, you know, when the, when denial doesn't work, we eventually go. You know, there's some. You know, I think people come to a point of acceptance. They go, "There's something going on here. This is this is not it." And so I find that that um, when a person's ready, they'll they you know, and sometimes you know, it's my job to help them to to get to that point. You know, when they've exhausted all the medical uh, kind of options. There's only really one person left in the room for them to look at, and I, th I guess yeah, I guess I'm just saying uh, I don't I don't sort of say right you know it's all it's all to do with your childhood but uh, you know I think people start to become open to to considering that in their own time it's some some quicker some longer but sooner or later they start to question you know the way they think about things the way they understand it and um that you know that's when they're really ready to start taking responsibility for their their health their well-being for and for dealing with you know whatever traumatic patterns might be maintaining their pain well i think it is one of the things mark that, that i suppose separates you as you say from from other health professionals in that way and it was alarming some of the statistics that you were saying before in terms of 50 percent uh, of people suffering from some I suppose issue with their attachment is sort of a, a, a really dim way of saying it sort of thing. But I suppose also when, when you look at those sorts of figures, I suppose it puts, for example, maybe the opioid crisis into a little bit more perspective and, and particularly maybe in America, you see how many people are really going to medications for, for things like chronic pain. But what I wonder is, is what is the role of medication in managing chronic pain? Because it's potentially not to say that, you know, just because there's potentially some underlying causational elements as well, that there is no role for medication. So I wonder, I suppose, is there a role for medication and what is that role? No, definitely. There, so first of all, there's, you know, medication is vital for managing acute pain and it's vital for managing um post-operative pain and the research shows that if it's not done right in the beginning that will predispose a person to the development of chronic pain so with pain you know you've got to hit it and hit it hard and early that's really that's really uh, that's really where medication is comes in helpful now when as time goes by and the pain isn't getting better um Really, medication becomes less useful and actually can create a lot more problems than it's solving. And um, we're not just talking about painkillers here. We're talking about, you know, sleeping pills, mood stabilizers, antidepressants. Um, so the typical chronic pain sufferer is on about five medications. And what, unfortunately, what happens is something that started out as being helpful actually ends up robbing them of their autonomy and their independence. And you know they feel you know kind of brain dead and dozy and um, you know it's just it's just a problem. Um, but uh, so, so um, they really really I mean chronic pain sufferers don't want to be on medication. No, no one's enjoying it, but they don't know they don't see any other alternative. So and again that when they get to that point where they're ready to sort of start. I suppose looking at themselves and dealing with the emotions, they're they're really to really really to start learning ways of coping that um, you know don't depend on medication. 
Um, so I see, I see there's a, um, there's a kind of a, like a normal curve and people go through, they sort of start off on probably modest med medication, end up on, you know, some of my clients, they come into my office who are on enough opioids to knock out an elephant, but because they've got tolerance, it's not affecting them, but they're not, they're pretty zonked. And um, usually there's a point at which they go, you know, I've had enough of this and so they actually, and then when they start to have therapy and things like that, their medication usage drops, sometimes slowly, sometimes quite dramatically. And they start to stand on their own two feet and don't need it anymore. So it's, it's a journey. And no one, everyone, no one wants to stay on medication. It's a, it's a journey. It's the best way to describe it. Well, that's a good leading now to the uh, different kind of techniques, the practical techniques that can help people. And I'd have to say, Mark, your lead transformed our ways of working with pain in this practice with the use of a particular technique called bilateral stimulation that relates to a therapy approach called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which we have not talked about much on this podcast. Bilateral stimulation is such an interesting, accessible, easy-to-use technique. And if we can just uh, lead you in that way to talk about bilateral stimulation as a strategy and a technique for dealing with chronic pain. Certainly, certainly. I'd be, be delighted to. That's sort of my life's work, really, Chris, as you know. Absolutely. Um, You've done much of that work in many countries. You've trained innumerable clinicians but that is the number one go-to technique we use of any particular intervention and in our practice Mark, i will just say dad said about the practice it's also the family as well <laughs> in terms of you know there was plenty of times when i was young when it was sort of you know i've maybe you know complaining about something a little bit too much and you know here we go rowan get on the uh get on the earphone so we all have to uh we all have to thank you mark <laughs> you want oh. technique you could use with your family without crossing a line so <laughs> yeah. yes well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Rowan. And um, I'll, I'll take that and I'll pass it on to Francine Shapiro, who really uh, is, is due all the thanks. Of course, she's the, the discoverer of EMDR, sadly no longer with us. But um, she, she discovered it quite, uh, bilateral stimulation, quite by happenstance as she was dealing with some issues in her life while she was walking in the park one day and experienced some spontaneous saccadic eye movements. And then she noticed after the eye movements um, that she felt less upset about, um, she, she actually had a cancer diagnosis. And um, one thing led to another and she started trying it with Viet Vietnam veterans and um, it's, it really helped them with their trauma. And uh, she developed this treatment method called EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And she was, she mainly, mainly relies on eye movements. Um, and I suppose the core element is that um, you get the person to focus on their traumatic memory or their pain and simultaneously attend to bilateral eye movements or, or audio tones. And um, something magical happens. And People start to feel more relaxed. They stop feeling anxious. They stop ruminating and they feel more calm and more embodied, more in the present and less, like, less, less of that monkey on the back kind of feeling. And 
then then and that effect seems to be relatively enduring so 5 10 15 20 minutes later an hour the next day that those memories those responses are permanently altered yeah, yes, and so one thing with the eye movements, we use that as a main trauma therapy technique, Mark, and it, it largely involves the person moving their eyes from left to right for a set of eye movements, doesn't it, over half a minute or a minute or so, and the therapist might be sitting close to the person, waving their fingers back and forth in front of their eyes to help the person focus on that and move their eyes to the right and left. But you often use the auditory stimulation and you have apps that are very accessible that we'll talk about later on where what the person puts in earplugs or puts on earphones and it's basically one sound like a like a click or something in the, in the right and then the left, but they're different kind of sounds you can use. But essentially, yeah. it's, it's rapidly alternating between the right and left ear, for example. Correct. So... Um... So bilateral stimulation is a core, as a course, it's a core treatment element of EMDR, and a quite, it was somewhat controversial treatment element, really. And um, a lot of people were poo-pooing it and saying, "Oh, it's just distraction." And there was, you know, when EMDR was kind of arrived on the scene, there was no no research regarding, you know, the mechan the treatment mechanisms. And um, I guess the you know um, uh, other other professionals at the time just thought it was a kind of uh, modification of uh, exposure therapy or something like that. And um, it's taken really up until fairly recently for research to emerge. Uh, now, a study in Nature in 2017, one by Bayek et al., which where they really they they. Uh, did an experiment with mice and proved that uh, bilateral stimulation uh, extinguishes their fear response in a way that uh, normal exposure therapy doesn't. And they actually were able to trace the brain circuits that do that. Um, so um, it's, it is, uh, there is evidence now to prove that bilateral stimulation is doing something. I think I think for the layperson, probably the best way to explain it is to think is to imagine that you're hijacking your own fight flight response, and I'll explain what I what I mean by that. Um, um, so, if you're anxious about something, let's say you're anxious about being in chronic pain, which is quite common experience. It's, you know, being in pain is quite scary and stressful. Um, so, you then your nervous system is essentially in a state of arousal, of fight flight, of fear. And then, if 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 you if you uh, if you're subjected to bilateral stimulation, so I'm just going to click my fingers now. Can you hear that? Yeah. So, basically, when your brain detects bilateral stimulation, auditory tones like that, the emotional part of the brain goes into operation, and it's it's called it's 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 part of a, 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 an area of the brain that is response for what's called the orienting response. And the orienting response is, is the part of your brain that really detects novel stimuli in your environment. And it's, it's part of your survival response. So when you're living in the savannah 40,000 years ago and you heard a rustle in the, in the grass while you're having a lunch, you wanted to make sure that wasn't a saber-toothed tiger sneaking up behind you. So there, we've got this inbuilt response to danger. So you're feeling anxious about being in chronic pain. 
then you 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 know this bilateral stimulation you're an actually you're you're actually reactivating your fight flight response but you're reactivating it to a benign stimuli so what happens is you're hijacking your fight flight response it's pretty smart and after 30 seconds of bilateral stimulation your brain goes well whatever that is it isn't a saber-toothed tiger and you start to relax and you and it happens quite quickly and quite automatically and Rowan you can probably vouch for that and and it almost happens without you doing anything it's kind of quite magical when you experience it, it just turns too easy but it, it's only because we don't really think of our brain in those ways so that's how I that's how I kind of explain it and I just think it's just really this, this something that should be taught in school that you can hijack your own fight flight response. Well, it is. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear you describe that because as you say, I certainly can vouch for that. And, and as I say, yeah, have, have used the app. And I suppose before speaking to you and before hearing you describe that, one of the things that stood out to me about the app is, I suppose, the range of things that it is applicable for in terms of, you know, I've used it from, you know, basically, you know, food poisoning without giving too much detail away, right through to, you know, having quite, you know, anxious thoughts, maybe ruminating on something. And, uh, and yeah, you know, had, had, yeah, conversations and just almost got the, uh, got the app out straight away. But it is interesting to hear almost the science behind it and the mechanics of it, because, yeah, what struck me was just the range of application that it did have. And I will just mention as well, we will put up the, the link to, to your great app as well, Anxiety Release on our, our podcast page for today at psychspills.com. Uh, au as well thank, thank you thank you actually i might mention with that too mark we have a demonstration video that we use in our practice that many people have accessed and it also describes how you can use uh, the app for worry or sometimes if people have been studying into the evening and their their minds overactive it can seem to settle one's mind yeah. and so we, we, we'll have those resources there including ways of accessing your overcomingpain.com website which has lots of oh, thank, thanks guys i really appreciate that I, I've yes. got, I also wanted to um just talking about the bilateral stimulation so it, so it creates this relaxation response and of course that changes the way, not only changes, you know, not only makes you feel relaxed, I mean, that's nice, but it also changes the way you see things. Because when we're relaxed, we feel, you know, we think better, we can, we're more creative, we're more, we feel more confident, we feel more able to cope with things. So um, quite a few people, I, I, so that's one, that's one element of, that's one byproduct of bilateral stimulation that's really very useful and helpful and um you know i have people who really who at the end of the treatment their pain's not a lot different but they say you know just i'm just not that i'm not that worried about it i just it's just not center stage it's not such a big deal i'm just getting on with my life and it's amazing you know from this person who came in who was a scared rabbit you know of their pain just just because they're able to tame the fear uh, that's a huge thing 
you describe that very well, taming the fear and the acceptance with it, but it's also quite striking how people can have sensory changes. Like they imagine, they might imagine the pain as a, a big red hot ball in their elbow, for example, but after a while it can seem smaller or fainter. Now, one of the things I find interesting, and, and we observe this with, with our clients using the app, but also you've described many different ways that people experience the, well, the sensory experience of pain's different there's something else in its place and you highlight this idea there's something else in the place of what was there before which has a kind of calming impact or helpful impact oh that's a great question that's a great observation and good question chris so one of the problems with chronic pain is that the brain um, really loses the capacity to experience joy and pleasure and it's interpreting everything pretty well as painful so when when a person you know when when a person's experienced bilateral stimulation and they're feeling more relaxed, um, it's the the treatment doesn't stop there. Then then really you know I try to help them connect with those feelings of relaxation to notice them in their body, to notice the qualities of those sensations, and to link them to other experiences they've had of pleasure and comfort. So really, it's, we're starting a process of retraining the brain to notice um, different bodily signals and to start developing memories of comfort and relief and really, really starting that whole neuroplastic process of changing the way people interpret their bodily signals, changing the way they relate to their pain and changing their pain. Change your brain, change your pain. Yes, and this can come up, say, in the trauma area, and that's the main technique, EMDR, that we use with our clients with post-traumatic stress. And it can be remarkable that someone goes from remembering a situation where they felt helpless and like a, a victim who they think's handled it poorly, but then they look back and they think how effectively they actually managed against the odds at the time and how well they did survive. Their thoughts and their perceptions about the trauma, they come to remember and experience it differently and their distress comes comes down. Now, you've talked a lot and you do a lot of training when there's a combination of post-traumatic stress or trauma and pain. For example, someone might have had a, an accident. Actually, they might even be suffering from phantom limb pain. That's amazing how EMDR can help with phantom limb pain is one example of trauma. Would you describe a bit more about that, how uh, EMDR can help when there's trauma plus pain? Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, tra trauma is a big term, but um, if a person's let's let's just take take a simple um, we can, we'll take an example. We can talk about phantom limb pain. So when a person's um, lost a limb due to an emotive vehicle accident or or, or uh, an infection, um, they can develop you know phantom limb pain. Where really, really that's a that's that's the that's the classic example of brain pain because there is no limb to feel pain. And yet they're experiencing pain in that limb that is no longer there. So where is that coming from? And um, that that um, that is that pain is is really what really what we think of now as a memory. It's called a procedural memory. So it's not like a memory of what did you have for lunch today. It's a memory of something that your body has experienced that it can't forget. And in the sense that EMDR is about changing memories about processing traumatic memories um, it's really probably it's probably most suited for those kinds of pain that are really 
part of a traumatic memory. So the, there's a great um, example of this with a, a, a guy in Germany who um, was in a motor, this, is, this, is a, this has been written up, uh, I can't remember the authors right now, but he was in a, motor, a motorcycle accident and he had his, really his leg was ripped off right up to the, to the thighs. And he was in a lot of pain. A lot of other things happened around that. He had some medical trauma associated with that. And um, after a couple of years of, of normal treatment, he just wasn't getting better. He was on tons of medication and he found out somehow he got into EMDR and within nine sessions of EMDR, his phantom limb pain was completely resolved. And he was, he's now working as a, a diver, a Navy training instructor for diving. And terrific. Um, the, the, and the EMDR, they just targeted, they targeted the accident that caused his pain. They targeted the pain itself. They targeted some of the medical trauma that you know, he'd experienced in his treatment and some other things that had happened in his life. And, and because he, he was really, a, he had actually a good family background. He didn't have attachment problems. He didn't have any other trauma. He, and those are the best clients for that kind of work. It's, um, you know, you can do a lot in a few sessions. Whereas, uh, I guess, clients who've had more complex, uh, stressful backgrounds, it tends to be a bit longer term. But that's, 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 that's a true story. And that's just, you know, amazing. Just shows you what's possible. Well, it's wonderful that there can be treatments that can be so targeted for such complex difficulties. But, but one of the things that uh, comes across in your training as well is there are a whole range of different pain management techniques that you've described. And one that I used for the first time yesterday, it'd be wonderful if you can explain this, is pendulation. That can be something so helpful. Could you describe pendulation for us? I can, Chris. And, and um, I, I just want to preface that by saying that, so of course, I don't just do EMDR. Um, I, I work holistically. I use a variety of strategies. And um, really for people who have um, complex medical histories and trauma backgrounds, I, almost, I would very, I would almost never just use EMDR alone. I'm always um, supplementing it with adjunctive strategies such as pendulation, hypnosis, mindfulness, and so on. So, and those strategies are designed to help people with persistent ongoing pain. So pendulation is a process that was really developed by Peter Levine, who wrote a book called Waking the Tiger. And he, 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 he's a man who knows a lot about, you know, I suppose how trauma is stored in the body and Really, the idea is that, is that with pendulation, it is that um, when we're in pain, we're fo we tend to be, we tend to, our attention tends to be on that area of our body, and that's kind of all we notice. And that tends to have a self-reinforcing effect. But of course, no, no one's in pain everywhere. There are parts of our body that are not in pain, maybe a little finger, maybe a big toe. So pendulation involves you know, really getting the client to direct their attention to a part of their body that feels pain-free, that feels comfortable, that feels normal. And it'll be different for everybody, but, but the, it involves really getting them to pay attention to that area for a few minutes 
uh, with it, with you know guided instructions. So just noticing what it feels like there, just noting the feelings of calm, you know, comfort. The muscles are soft, the blood is flowing like it should be. Just, just um, you know, noticing the feeling of well-being there. Everything's as it should be. And maybe if there's a a color that goes with that, a nice healing color, whatever comes to mind. And then after a few minutes of that, you know, you've got the person, they're really not thinking about their pain. They're having a nice experience of focusing on feelings of comfort and well-being. And um, then you then you say, oh, by the way, what's happening with your, you know, they're, they're in pain right now. And they go, well, gee, now that, now that, I, now that you mention it, it doesn't really seem, seems different to how it felt when we first started talking and you go great and then you then you pendulate back again to the area of comfort and spend another two or three minutes just focusing on that on the color and the, and the feelings and the sensations and so on and then you ask them oh, by the way how's that you know what are you noticing with the pain now and they go oh gee it seems even less you know painful and distressing now and you do that three or four times and really all it is is redirecting attention and but you it's very hard for a person to do that on their own and that's where having a therapist comes in handy yes and, that, but perhaps yeah. after having that experience people can practice that a little bit at home do you find once people have yeah. been exposed to it well, I, I've, I've got a recording of that on my overcoming pain app so that you know people can Terrific. can have that guided experience of that um, because it's very hard to not notice pain unless you've got someone guide, you know, your attention. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's, I could, attention is, attention, the brain, only, attention is the number two function of the human brain. The brain only does two things, really. It, it, it pays attention and it decides whether to keep it or forget it. So attention and memory are the two main functions of the brain. And so when you, when you can manipulate, when, you, when a person can learn to change the focus of attention, you're well on the way to being able to control your pain. Okay. And one of the things that reminds me of, too, a quite specific way of changing people's attention is you've described different types of antidote imagery. Can you tell us about antidote Im imagery? Oh, yeah, sure. So... Can I, can I put this? I guess, I guess antidote imagery is, is really utilizing another brain capacity, and that is imagination. So antidote, really antidote imagery involves creating a pain antidote, an imagined pain antidote based on the client's description of their pain. So I would ask the client, you know, what is, you know, describe your pain. What does it feel like in terms of its size, its shape, its color. And let's say, like you said, they get a, a big red ball. And then I'd say, now I want you just to park that for, for a minute and think of something that could take that away or make it feel better. The opposite of that, something cool, something, something that's sort of kind of smaller or shrinking or, or diminishing. And they might come up with, see, a metal actually shrinking, or they might come up with an anesthetic mist or a Really, the it's it's quite infinite, and then I don't, and, I, and, I, and then you just get them to imagine that antidote imagery, you know, really alleviating their pain, changing the way they feel. So it's kind of like it's kind of like a mental opiate. It's just like a, a mind opiate, but it, it has to be 
uh, kind of based on the on the on the description of the pain. Um, you, you know, you, it's called in psychology we call that mentalizing. You know, when you're actually um, creating a mental representation of what's happening. And most people in pain don't do that. They just feel hurt. They feel the ache. They feel, you know, the emotion. But they're not really mental. You know, they're not really. You can't do much with that. But if you can mentalize it, you can do anything with it because you know, imagination is infinite. And with that hurt and, say, the tension that can go with that, uh, some common psychological strategies include relaxation techniques or mindfulness techniques. Well, what would be the role, for example, with relaxation techniques and pain? Well, relaxation techniques, of course, um, help to really, you know, really reduce the levels of tension in the body. And um, they're they're a long they're a long they've got a long history in the treatment of chronic pain. Um, the difference, I mean, and they're they're essential. But the difference between relaxation and EMDR is that relaxation hasn't been actually found to do much in terms of people's experience of their pain. Um, and all and and in a way, maybe Rowan, you can validate this too. Relaxation is hard work. You've got to concentrate. It's going to take time out, whereas bilateral stimulation is instant, it's quick, it's accessible, you don't have to imagine anything. It's it's kind of it's kind of relaxation for idiots. I mean, it's just it's just so easy and quick and natural. So I really I I have all you know, relaxation has its place, but and all and all my clients I teach to do it. But I, again, I come back to the BL the bilateral stimulation for the for its ease and its convenience. Yeah, and I will say yes. Certainly, uh, yeah, can can validate that as well. And I suppose, like, like for me as well, someone like I'm not naturally someone who feels that you know, yeah, as you say, like I'm I'm no good at quieting my mind down in certain situations. And um, yeah, that's where it is that yeah, really easy alternative that way. But uh, yeah. I suppose, Mark, yeah. we, we better let you go in a moment. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you, and I, I feel that I've learned so much. And and I suppose just as a final question from me and. And that's to do with the, the role of social support in pain management, because, you know, even at the start of this conversation, I almost viewed pain is in, in many ways an inherently individual thing. It's something that, you know, we go through by ourselves and in many ways it's potentially very hard to get across to those around us. But speaking about things like attachment and about our connection to those around us, may, it seems to allude to me that there is maybe a, a, a real need or a real yeah, a real part of social connection, which which is connected to pain in some ways. In terms of, it seems to me maybe if we can develop more of that social connection, it will help our experience of pain. Is that the case at all? You know, Rowan, there's an old saying: you've got to love yourself before you can be loved by anybody else. And of course, really, in in, in therapy with chronic pain sufferers, it's as much as about helping people learn to love themselves. And, and to look after themselves. And once they do that, you know, their relationships change. They learned, so, so you know, for, for example, the, the harried housewife learns that she doesn't have to do everything. She can ask her spouse for support. And if he says no, she's gonna tell him, buddy, you better get your act together or she's gonna be on the first train out of town. And, and so um, I guess, you know, when people, that support, you can't get support unless you know how to support yourself. It's an extension. 
And really what happens in a lot of my treatment is that people learn to, to, to ask for what they want, to get the support they need. And it's a kind of chicken and egg situation. Um, it's, it's no good just saying, look, you need to go and talk with someone. You know, if you're telling that to someone who says, oh, it's not safe to trust anybody, I can't show my vulnerability, you know, that's not going to work. You know, they, they've got to do that, that emotional work first and then they can access the support and really know how to, you know, how to give that to themselves. So, yeah. Great. And before Rowan reviews some of the resources with you and anything else you'd like to direct people's attention to, Mark, for follow-up materials. Look, the main thing I want to say, Mark, is um, it's a delight to be exposed to your clarity of explanations. You explain things very clearly, but over and above that, one thing I admire so much about your approach is it's so utterly compassionate, uh, humanistic, you're really interested in people and really interested in people's well-being. And I think that really helps that holistic kind of approach you're describing and the way that you invite people to be self-compassionate themselves as well. You're leading people on a journey to understand themselves more fully that has challenges to it, but also rewards along the way. And so uh, it's, it's the way you describe it, it really sounds like a hero's journey dealing with pain that we've talked about before. But thank you so much for the way that you model that that compassion, that holistic approach and that interest um, that you show people. And that, that would seem to be an important part of the healing elements of your work, I imagine. Oh, look, la, you know, thank you. Thank you so much, for Chris. Um, I'm, I'm, I really am, I'm come, I come from a place of love. And, I don't, and that's a big word. That's a big word. And I say it with, you know, with, with humility and respect. It's not something I say casually or trivially. And it's a big commitment. When I take a client on, you know, I'm, it's, they're not just, uh, you know, a client or a patient or a customer. They're a human being who I'm going to have a relationship with, who I'm going to walk, you know, walk the hero's, hero's journey with. And we're going to go to some dark places together. So there has to be trust. You know, there has to be an alliance. And, um, but what a great journey to take. What a privilege and what a joy. Um, well, yeah, yeah, that that all absolutely comes across, Mark. And and also to that, just the empowerment that it must give people as well in terms of, oh, I imagine part of, of suffering chronic pain would be, for example, something as practical as not being able to anticipate, you know, activities on the weekend. And, you know, it could be, you know, a round of golf or nine holes of golf in a cart. You know, that, that could be something that could be seen to be, you know, incredibly tough. But then when you go through some of this sort of stuff, then I imagine people would feel confident and empowered to, I guess, start to become themselves again, to start to go back to some of these hobbies that they've maybe avoided as well. They, they do. No, I, you know, often after a very long, hard road, after long setbacks, some of my clients, that you know, really they just wanted to take some pills and end it all. So when you get to that point... And when they've been to the darkest places and they're saying, you know, I can, I've got a life now and um, life's worth living. I'm, you know, I can see a future and hope. It's just so, so, so rewarding. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine a better, more satisfying job. And when, and sorry, when, when a client says at the end of that, and I, many clients say this and it blows me away. They said, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. So, you know, someone who's lost a leg or, or someone who can't, 
play sport anymore or, or you know because they've grown so much as a person it's truly humbling well, we will just mention a couple of things. For those watching the video, we've got uh, we've got your book here, Mark, Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain, which, uh, yeah, it's a, a brilliant book. Uh, a couple of apps as well that we've mentioned too. We've got uh, the Anxiety Release one, which, you know, that's something that I, I was mentioning that to friends at uni to sort of try and get a few sort of cheap points amongst people. So it's something that I can certainly vouch for myself. We've got Overcoming Pain, the app, and the Sleep Restore app. Uh, and the website as well, www.overcomingpain.com. We'll put all the res- or all the links to those up on the, the episode page for today. But Mark, thank you so much for chatting to, to both myself and dad. It's, uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to chat to you. And I feel that, yeah, I've really learned so much. And as I say, you know, we're, we'll, I imagine, have a, a few psychologists on the program, but you'll be one who uh, I've personally enjoyed your stuff as much as anyone, because yeah, particularly with that app, it's uh, come in very handy in times of distress over the time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you so much, Mark. And we know that your influence, your positive influence is spreading is spreading far and wide. I know that you're doing some training with the British Department of Defence as one example, but you've done much work at an international level as well as trained many people in Australia. And just very recently, myself and my colleagues benefited greatly from that. So terrific, terrific to speak with you, Mark. Thanks very much for being with us today.